Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today we speak with Arti Shah, a content creator and a dedicated endometriosis advocate who's actively engaged in the endometriosis space in Kenya and beyond. Her conviction and commitment is to positively impact the narrative of living with endometriosis through self-advocacy, play therapy, and personal engagement. Arti advocates that the next generation doesn't have to battle this debilitating condition as we have and so people can have a better quality of life from an early age. Artie is the host of A Ray of Sunshine, which is a podcast that has insights from endometriosis medical experts and advocates from all over the world, and debunks misinformation about endometriosis. In this episode, Artie shares about her personal experiences with cultural and social barriers to care, as well as exciting initiatives that are improving body literacy and access to excision. So this episode is really a part of a short series that we are doing on endometriosis care and experiences globally. You know, the problems with care, with misinformation, with lack of access to excision. These are problems that the endometriosis community faces worldwide. These are global problems. And we want to highlight the voices of a few advocates worldwide who are doing great work and who can speak on obstacles to care that they've come across and also report on obstacles to care that members of their respective regional support groups have experienced. Please keep in mind, however, that while our guests share their experiences and opinions, they don't speak for or represent all of the people in their country or region. Just like when I speak about the care I've experienced in the United States, I'm not speaking for every person's experience in the United States either. Many of our experiences are similar, but they're also each unique and individual to all of us, and they vary widely. All of the opinions expressed by the interviewees on this podcast are their own. I also want to give a content warning that in this episode, there is use of gendered language at times in regards to endometriosis or menstruation. However, we want to acknowledge that endometriosis, as well as menstruation, can be experienced by people of any gender identity and not just women. Hi, Artie. Thank you so much for joining us today on my podcast. Why don't we go ahead and introduce ourselves? So I'll start. My name is Amy. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the co-host of this podcast, and I'm here in the United States. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for having me on your incredible podcast. My name is Artie Shah, and I'm an endometriosis advocate, and I live um, in Kenya. My pronouns are she and her. So, Arti, you're an endometriosis advocate. Would you tell us about any organizations that you run? For example, I know that you have a podcast 
and you've been very vocal about advocacy. So would you let us know a little bit more about this project and also your goal for advocacy and why do you advocate? Um, so I advocate because we are trying to change the narrative for the next generation not to get to what we have been through or get to a stage where early diagnosis for endometriosis and the right care is available for them. And I always feel that advocacy leads to empowered patients, which changes the narrative for all patients worldwide. Um, here in Kenya, I released, um, in April, I released uh, Kenya's first podcast on endometriosis, if not Africa's first. And um, it's on a platform called uh, Capital FM, which is our leading radio station on SoundCloud. And my Instagram, I lobby a lot on Instagram. My Instagram handle is RT Photography. So you can catch me on that. And yeah, we just try our best. I've been living with this condition for over 25 years. I was diagnosed with endometriosis in 2004 and have had multiple surgeries, which have been ablation. And I look forward to soon having my excision surgery. Artie, I just want to congratulate you on your endeavor with your podcast. I've listened to a couple episodes and it's really chock full of information. You've had some amazing interviews with advocates on there. But I also just want to say that's really cool that you have this platform to talk about endometriosis on the leading radio station in Kenya. Like that must be reaching a really wide audience. Thank you so much, Amy. Um, yes, it is. Um, I'm really grateful and humbled that it's reaching a lot of audience out there. It's reached over 12,000 listens, especially the first and second episode. To be honest with you, I call it our Endo Community Podcast because it's I just, yeah, I just feel that this podcast is about the entire endo community globally and here, and it's a voice for the voiceless. I don't call it my podcast because I just feel that it has the right tools from the guests that I've been interviewing, that it prepares them to manage themselves and treat themselves in a better way possible. As part of this series, I've been interviewing a few advocates in different countries, and I've been asking them, what does typical endometriosis care look like in your country? So the typical endometriosis care in Kenya here is how it has been around the world, basically before excision was blown out now. It's about get pregnant, your endometriosis will go away start on hormonal therapy, which will be completely game-changer and a life-changing experience for you, and also um, have a hysterectomy uh, that will cure endometriosis. Now, the problem is, in 2004, for example, I was told that as well. I was told, I've just come out of uh, surgery, and I've been diagnosed with endometriosis, and my mom was told, you know, just tell her to get pregnant, and endometriosis will go away. I come from an Indian background where you cannot get pregnant if you're not in a family unit. That means marriage. So for a doctor to tell the mother of the patient that, it's quite shocking, you know. First of all, you're um, trying to figure out what is this condition that you've got. You know, I've never heard of it. It was Initially, it was always like endo who, what, where, how, you know. And um, also recently, yes, in the last... Seven to eight years is where excision talks have been. 
Excision surgery has always been there for the longest time ever, but the awareness about excision has been there. A lot of OBGYNs perform ablation and they say that, you know what, we burnt it and you don't have to worry about endometriosis. It's gone. Uh, you're put on hormonal tablets. We do a lot of advocacy work in terms of we have support groups. So we do a lot of counseling on that as well. As patients, we need to take control as well. We need to take charge. Hence why I keep saying an informed patient is an empowered patient. You know, it's upon us to make these changes. Here, we just recently in the last two years have had a few surgeons or OBGYNs who have now come out about saying that they do excision uh, surgery. And that is huge for us because we never had that. I have interviewed a few of them on my podcast because I wanted to know exactly what it is that they do. Because here we are, like, you know, for your podcast, for my podcast, we're promoting information that is real, that is factual. You know, it is not based on just saying, yes, we do it, and I'm going to become popular from that. So what did you find when you interviewed a few of the doctors who do excision in your country? Did you feel that they were knowledgeable about endometriosis and excision? Yes, thankfully, yes. <laughs> My fear was them not being knowledgeable about it, but I was really impressed. I was very proud to know that, yes, we do have that level. Obviously, these are new doctors in the sense, new to excision, not new doctors in the field of gyneco uh, gynecology. But in the field of endometriosis excision, and when I interviewed Dr. Sinerva on my podcast, he did say that this is how excision surgeons come about. You know, the more the surgeries that they perform, excision surgeries, the more and more experience they get. So we have to be patient. The fact that we do have that here in Kenya is a milestone. That's amazing. And I'm so glad to hear that. I do think that there are more excision surgeons around the world every year. And I think that is a big achievement for the endometriosis community. Of course, as you said, um, we have to be patient. These doctors have to hone their skills. It's not the same. A doctor who just began doing excision as a doctor who's, who has a high volume caseload of excision year after year after year. But I think it's great that there is interest in doctors training to do excision. There are more doctors because ultimately access is a huge problem worldwide. And I think while we would all love to jump on a plane and fly to see some of the top doctors in the world, that's just not possible for the great majority of us. And so to have local doctors or even doctors who they may not be local, but at least they're in your country, so many people have to fly out of their country to get care. And that's really hard. It's really hard to navigate those costs financially. It could be hard to navigate if you, you know, have a job or have a family and then just getting care in a different country where you may not speak the language, where you don't know anyone, where you have to stay in a hotel or some kind of Airbnb the whole time is just the fact that we're getting more surgeons. I wish it was happening faster and faster than it is, but I, I do feel there is hope and maybe in five, 10 years time, like we said, the next generation of people coming into this disease will have a much different experience than we've had. Absolutely. You nailed it. I share your sentiments 
a thousand percent, you know. And um, yes, definitely. I mean, the costs are ridiculous. And unfortunately, insurance companies come into play where, you know, until endometriosis is not looked outside of it being a reproductive condition, it's always going to be a challenge, you know, and endometriosis. And this is why I also say, going back to, especially here in Kenya, getting the endometriosis definition right. If you can't get that definition correct in itself, how do you treat it the right way possible? You know, for example, last year we had our first endometriosis conference, East African conference. And this year we had a second one, which was actually uh, physical. The last year one was virtual. And I had a lecturer who was the chair for one of the sessions. And he's the lecturer and a professor at the University of Nairobi. And um, I said to him, but, you know, you don't get the definition right. You say endometriosis is the endometrium in the uterus. And I was like, no, but it's not. And I said, if you guys can't get the definition right, how do you treat it? And I was just laughed at. I was literally laughed at. I was so livid. Like, literally, I was just like, to an extent where I got certain doctors who I have been in conversation with saying that we hear your anger, we feel your pain. And this is the thing, you know, correcting misinformation is a huge, huge deal when it comes to just advocating about endometriosis, not just from advocates and patients, but from medical fraternity too. So you mentioned the first East African conference. I was wondering what different countries did doctors or patients attend from? So as much as it was labeled, um, and it is labeled the East African Endometriosis Conference, it's actually um, sponsored by DAD, which is a university in Germany. So we had actually doctors from around the world who spoke, advocates around the world who pitched in, but more so obviously in Africa. East Africa covers Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. Well, we had doctors from Nigeria. We had doctors from India, Germany, Europe, a lot of countries in Europe. We had a number of different array of guests from around the world. You said that the next one is going to be in person. Where will that be held? So we just had it in um, end of um, start of April. We had it here. The second East African Endometriosis Conference was held here in um, Kenya in a hotel in Nairobi. It was actually during this conference that we got to know a lot more about what certain doctors are actually doing for Kenya in the role of endometriosis. And during this conference is when I got to learn about, yes, we, I already knew the research that's still happening. And we do have a lot of researchers. And so during the conference, um, a lot of people were educated on the research going on over here in Kenya. For myself, I found out that a few doctors here who have now been doing excision surgery, especially, you know, just initial parts of it. And for non-advanced cases, if that makes sense, we found out that there's a project, there's an initiative that they do with that, which is called laparoscopy machinani. Mashinani means the grassroots. This initiative is for our rural citizens, for those who can't afford anything at all. And it's a brilliant initiative. Some patients over here, they can't even afford consultation fees, let alone anything else. 
So the doctors waive off those fees, they waive off the surgical procedure costs, you know, they waive off the anesthesia cost, you know, all that is very expensive. And so what they do is they have a list that they write down the patient that they've seen. And this initiative happens once a month or once in two months, depending on the availability. And then they call the patients and take them to the designated destination of where the machinani is going to happen in the particular rural area. And they perform excision, which I think is such a beautiful initiative. And, you know, I was so happy to hear about this that I interviewed all the doctors because I actually want to do a podcast episode just about that. That's an incredible initiative. So what I heard is that you have these doctors in Kenya who do excision and then they kind of have like a moving, like they move around to different communities, especially rural communities to be able to make care accessible in communities where they wouldn't normally have access to something like excision surgery, or perhaps they would not even have access to gynecological care. So they move around the country, um, waiving as many costs as possible for the patients that would not normally be able to access and afford care. Yeah, absolutely. They do that. And I, I just think it's such a great initiative because, you know, this is giving back to the society and they said they wanted to give back. And, you know, and this is the same group of people, one of the doctors who who is part of this um, initiative is actually in the pipeline of opening our first center for excellence for endocare in Kenya. Honestly, I think that is such a wonderful initiative. I'm looking here at the uh, 2021 World Bank collection of information about population, and um, it's saying that the total rural population of Kenya is reported to be 71.51%. So, you know, more than two thirds of the population in Kenya, at least according to this data I found on the World Bank information of 2021, a huge majority of patients are in rural communities. So to be able to bring care to rural communities is, is just, it's so wonderful because I think a huge problem worldwide, and especially in some countries compared to others, is that care is really centered in urban areas. Care is really centered in the cities. And, you know, I think he, even in, within the United States where we are able to access our rural areas um, quite easily, there's roads, there may or may not be buses, but there's roads. Many people own a car. Um, it's quite easy for us to get around in our rural areas here in the United States. But even so, in many rural areas here in the United States, there's not super great care. I mean, I grew up in a rural area in the Northeast, and if we wanted good care, we had to go to the capital, you know, and the capital was an hour and a half away for us. And I mean, luckily, I lived in a small state where the capital was just an hour and a half away, but that's not the same for everyone. And I can't even imagine what it's like in some of these countries where when we say rural, I mean we mean really rural, you know, like people don't have cars. There may not be buses that go into that area. It may be a two or three day walk just to get to a larger town to then get access to go into a city to then have to change buses to go to the capital. So, you know, worldwide, there are people who are living very far away from cities. So the fact that they're traveling around the country to different communities, that is, that is so beautiful. And I would love to see 
that initiative become a model for worldwide care instead of patients having to go to urban areas and to cities. It would be great if, you know, there could be more. It could be like endometriosis excision without borders. <gasps> that would be so, so cool. Absolutely. Our rural areas here, like there's so many of them that I've never even been to. You know, you can't access them. Forget forget cars and buses and all. They don't even have water. They don't even have electricity. Um, a lot of the girls don't even have, you know, access to sanitary pads, sanitary wear. I mean, there are girls who would miss school during their uh, menses. This is the rural areas of developing countries because we are a developing country. Yes, we are advanced in a lot of areas, but we're still a developing country. So to see such in initiatives over here in Kenya, it truly is just heartwarming. Artsy, I wanted to circle back for a minute when you when you mentioned insurance in your country. And I was just wondering, just generally, what is the insurance situation like in Kenya? Is it a buy-in where people have, there's private insurance that you pay for, or is it through your employer? Or is there a state um, system where there's like universal health care? There's so many different models in different countries. So I'm just curious, just generally speaking, what is insurance like in your country? So we have our National Hospital Insurance Fund, which is the NHIF. Okay, that doesn't cover a lot. And I don't want to go into the nitty gritty of it because, you know, that will be a whole conversation for another day, you know. But what it is, is that Unfortunately, a lot of private insurance companies, you have to pay your premiums, which are a minimum amount, which a lot of people can't afford again, because endometriosis that comes under the reproductive health is not catered for. You do have private um, insurance companies that are there as well. Like, I'm really lucky that I have a private international. Uh, medical insurance company that covers me for endometriosis but this luxury not everybody has because the premiums are so high that they can't afford to pay them you know like right now we do have a few doctors who have reduced their costs for uh, laparoscopy surgery but even that comes to a basic laparoscopy surgery that covers your reproductive area it's about 400,000 shillings, which in dollars would be, we're looking at what, $3,000 or 3500 to $800. And that's a lot of money, you know, especially with, you know, our cost of living is very high here in Kenya. I mean, yes, it's high worldwide because obviously, you know, with war, with economical challenges, everything's gone up, you know, the inflation is so bad that the cost of living has gone up so much that you would think for a local citizen or for even a Kenyan citizen, what is more important, buying and saving up for bread and milk or trying to see how your insurance can cover you for endometriosis, which is really sad. Generally speaking, aside from the couple of excision surgeons that you were speaking about earlier, that you had the honor of interviewing on your podcast, but generally speaking, have you found or when you're talking with 
community members from Kenya, people who also have endometriosis within Kenya, because I know you're in contact with, you know, you've been attending conferences, you have your podcast. So I know that you speak to different people in Kenya about endometriosis care. Generally speaking, have you found doctors to be knowledgeable about endometriosis? Recently, yes. And we did have like less than a handful before as well. But recently in the last two to three years, awareness about endometriosis and having doctors who are aware of endometriosis has grown tremendously. You know, we're not now told that, oh, get pregnant and you'll be cured or let's do a hysterectomy and you'll be fine or it's all in your head. The narrative is changing slowly. Yes, we have a long way to go, but the change is happening, which is a positive. So we have talked about how there are these projects to try to make excision available in your country and even more accessible to rural communities. But until recently, how have you found access to excision surgery? Um, What about, for example, in your own journey until now? I know you said that you're having excision surgery in a couple of weeks, which I'm very excited for you and congratulations. But how have you found managing care for yourself until recently? So for my journey, it's been a real rough ride because I wasn't happy with the care that I was getting over here, to be honest with you. And I'm talking about now for the last nine years, I decided to go holistic in my journey for endometriosis. Holistic meaning non-conventional. And prior to that, for seven years, I used to go to Thailand for treatment for endometriosis because I felt I was getting better care there than what I was getting here. And the fact that you see differences like the doctor there, the OBGYN, would actually sit me down and read. If he was giving me a hormonal tablet, he would read the ingredients with me. That makes a difference. Supposed to being told, this is what you have to take. This is what's going to do. This is going to cure your endometriosis. Forget what the side effects are. Because we all know very well that the side effects that come along with hormonal tablets and the hormonal treatment of endometriosis is another whole ball game. You know, you're there tackling that as well. And it's so difficult. And so eventually I came about for the last nine years, I changed the entire way I was handling endometriosis for myself. If I had the accessibility to the doctors that have now come about then, then things would have been different. You know, I'm grateful that they are there, especially, and this is why we do the advocacy work so that the next generation has it better than us. You know, so I introduced, I made lifestyle changes, I made holistic changes, I made, you know, I ruled out food allergies, I ruled out so many things that I thought were associated and affiliated with endometriosis where they were quite different from it. And eliminating certain things reduced pain levels as well. Also, I introduced acupuncture, which for me has made a world of a difference. Yes, I know it's not a cure for endometriosis, but it's a modality for better management of just having a better lifestyle dealing with this chronic illness. Until now is when I finally have managed to sort out a journey for excision. Until then, I needed to do something to manage this condition. I would have gone mental otherwise, you know. You have your suicidal thoughts because you just think this is ridiculous. This is not 
this is living with endometriosis and the hell that it comes with is no way for any person to live by. You know, we all deserve the proper and the right care that should be there in managing or treating endometriosis. And as we all know, you know, you and I, we all know that excision is the gold standard. You know, yes, it's not a cure because there is no cure for endometriosis. But at least you have a chance of a better lifestyle than what you are. And I mean this not only socially or in your physical life or, you know, mentally, but even work-wise, even education-wise, even for girls studying, how many people, you know, have had to miss school, miss out on education, miss out on jobs, miss out on career potentials just because of this one illness? Well, I think it's exactly that. I mean, nowadays there is more awareness. Well, first of all, of what endometriosis is and that these symptoms that we're having for many of us could be pelvic pain, painful periods, pain with sex, other symptoms, GI symptoms, urinary symptoms, so many symptoms. (laughs) It's unbelievable how many symptoms, to be honest. But I think nowadays there's more awareness that these symptoms are indicative of a disease like endometriosis instead of these symptoms being dismissed as all in your head, you need to relax more when you have sex, you just have IBS, et cetera. But the other thing is I think there's more awareness that excision surgery is a gold standard treatment. Of course, awareness of it isn't changing in many cases the access to it, but at least we're becoming as patients more aware. Although of course, we still have a long way to go because when excision is not being talked about by the doctors that we see, so many of the doctors are not talking about excision. They're not mentioning excision. You know, when we go to the doctor, it would be great if we had a conversation, which is what you said you were getting when you went to Thailand. You felt the doctor you were seeing was having a conversation with you about your treatment, about side effects, about the ingredients. And that's really important because so much of endometriosis care worldwide is very top down. It's just very like, I'm a patient, I go to see you. And then the doctor just says, this is what you have to do, or this is your only option. And they present many times these treatments, this is your only option. And it's a hormone therapy or it's Lupron or it's Orlissa. And it's like, first of all, that's not my only option. So like, please don't use that language. Maybe it's the only option you, the doctor can offer me in your practice, but it's definitely not the only option that's available. And so when they're framing it like that, it can be really hard as the patient. I mean, I was told my only option was hormones or live with it. You know, I was really young at that point. I was like maybe 21 years old. And so I was like hormones or live with it. And I'd been on so many different types of hormones. I did hormone shots, hormone pills, the the ring, the patch. I, I tried what I thought was many different types of hormones. They all put me in hell. And then I was like, okay, I guess I just need to suck it up and live with it. And that wasn't my only option. I had options, which was do diet change or to try to, you know, in my own case, I ended up learning about things like diet change, yoga, meditation. I also did Chinese herbal therapy with, with an acupuncturist. There, there were so many things that I ended up doing to try to survive my day to day with this illness because Excision surgery may be the gold standard, but if we can't access it, we still have to live our lives without it. And so how do you live when every, every single day, your symptoms, your pain is unbearable. You can't take it physically or mentally. And we have to find ways 
to be able to get through our days and then hopefully actually start to live our life, not just survive every single day, but, you know, try to live a better life and, and try to find less pain and meaning and joy amidst or among all of the suffering. And that's just, it's really, really hard. So thank you for sharing about how you embrace holistic care, because I think that is really important and it looks different for everyone. Of course, what you did is and worked for you is not what worked for me is not what worked for other people. But I wish there was more conversations from doctors about holistic care, and maybe they can't offer that care because it's not in their expertise, but at least they could open a conversation and say, look, this is what I could offer you, but there are many patients who take these other steps to try to manage their day-to-day while they're waiting to have surgery, or some patients maybe never are going to be able to access surgery. So how can you know, I went 16 years without excision surgery, and I'm sure you went a decade or more without having excision surgery, two decades, 25 years. She's motioning to me right now, 25 years without getting access to excision surgery. And those, those are huge chunks of our lives, you know? So how can we, how can we make it work with this illness? How can we try to feel our best? Artsy, one of the questions I've been asking in this series, what are any cultural, generally, of course, what are any cultural or societal norms that you've seen or that you've experienced yourself or that you've found in the different support groups that you're in that impact the ability to receive adequate care or to be diagnosed quickly? Unfortunately, for the longest time ever, Period talk has had and has been a taboo. You know, if you talk about periods, there's something wrong with you. And this is not just, I'm not talking about just as in the Indian culture. It's also in the African culture. I'll give you an example from the Indian culture, from my own experience, that we have every year a time of fasting period. Okay, I'm Hindu and Jain, to be specific. And... In the Indian culture, it's told that if you have your periods, you're an untouchable. You're not allowed to do certain things. You're not allowed to go to the temple. You're not allowed to perform uh, certain rituals. Nobody in your family can touch you. You know, and we're all trying to break away from these cultural norms because I feel it's not God who's made them or the higher being, whoever you believe in them. It's human beings dictating this. You know, as for the African cultural norms, we have advocates, you know, who tell us that, oh, we can't talk about period pain. We can't talk about periods because, you know, it's a taboo. We're always told to brush it aside. We had painful periods. Your mother had painful periods. Your grandmother had painful periods. So you have painful periods. Suck it up and deal with it. You know, whereas there are girls who have come up and said, you know, that we have extremely painful periods, but parents believe that they're having sex, you know? So that whole social norm comes about, which really defames you mentally and emotionally, because this is how depression kicks in. This is how suicidal thoughts kick in, that because you're not being believed onto something that you didn't ask for, that is happening because of the body that you carry. Just recently, we had an endometriosis patient who was basically 
performed an exorcism on because she was told that she's got a demon in her body that because periods are never meant to be this painful. Because your periods are so painful, you have a demon in your body and we need to perform exorcism. She was actually locked up in the church and performed on an exorcism. And this is something in this day and age we should be very far from. You know, you can imagine, again, the mental health impact that this has done or caused for that patient. So these are the challenges of the cultural and societal norms that we try and break free from. This is why I wanted to have this podcast over here in Kenya. This is why, you know, it's so important why we'll advocate we're not only providing information, the right information and educating patients, but we're providing information and educating families, brothers, mothers, fathers, sisters, husbands, wives, everyone who's impacted on it because it is a cohesive condition. It impacts everybody around your circle. And this is the reason why we do what we do. Unfortunately, I think that something that really hinders care in many parts of the world is the assignment of spiritual meaning to the sicknesses or the pain, especially period pain that we experience. I've heard other advocates in other parts of the world and other countries um, speak about something similar. One of my close friends, she has adenomyosis, but she had a huge obstacle to care because her family thought that it was the devil um, like manifesting itself in, in the, in her pain. And so, and that can be really hard because when you have the people around you who are telling you, you need an exorcism or, oh, if your periods are so painful, it's an indication that you're having sex already, um, you know, out of wedlock or at a young age. And there's just so much shame and potentially scandal. And it becomes so complicated to be heard and to be believed, forget accessing care, forget even getting to the doctor's office when it's either suck it up and deal with it, or we have to deal with this through the church. Education is so important and awareness is so important worldwide. And I really feel that one of the reasons why endometriosis has been in the dark in terms of care and education for so long is because one of the symptoms is painful periods for many people. Although we know that's not the only symptom and we know that not all people with endometriosis have painful periods, but for many of us, painful periods are really the first indication at a young age that we have this disease. And periods are shrouded in taboo in so many parts of the world. And even here in the United States, where I think we're a little more forward thinking about uh, menstruation than in other places, there's still so many people who it's just, oh, it's TMI and you just can't talk about your period. You have to hide your menstrual product when you go to the bathroom. I think this is just a huge, huge hindrance to care. You know, recently I finished a amazing book. I found out about this book through Heather Guidon because she wrote an article in it and she is the director of the Center for Endometriosis. And it's called the Palgrave Handbook of Critical Menstruation Studies. And I will link that in the show notes today, but you can read it for free online. And it is this incredible, incredible compilation of 
research about menstruation, stories about menstruation, menstruation in different countries, menstruation when incarcerated, menstruation among trans and non-binary people, menstruation in reference to illnesses such as endometriosis and other illnesses, menstruation in reference to um, religion and how it interplays with religion and cultural practices, cultural norms in different parts of the world. It's long. It's like a thousand pages and it took me like six months to read. I just like read a little bit every single night. But if you like anthropology, if you like other cultures, and if you like learning about, about menstruation, oh my goodness, it's just, it was so fascinating. And I feel that I really had no idea. Like I only knew about my own experience with menstruation, which I'm going to say like, you know, wasn't great. And I didn't like, and I knew my experience with menstruation was harder than maybe like the average person but I had no idea how complex and how difficult menstruation can be in so many cultures of the world for these various aspects of, you know, cultural, societal, religious, all these different norms. So I really recommend that, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's a huge obstacle to care the way that we think about menstruation in so many parts of the world really can prevent access to to care. And because it's part of culture, because it's seen as so normal, I can only imagine that when that person's in the, her community said, oh, you need an exorcism. People didn't blink at that. They weren't like, oh, this is odd. They were like, oh yeah, an exorcism. That makes sense because culturally those are the norms in that area, you know? And so these are some of the big problems is that we need more education around what does healthy menstruation look like? And what is menstruation? Like, what actually is menstruation? You know, why does the body do it? Um, what purpose does it serve for the body? So I think body literacy is really important and something that we are lacking worldwide. Definitely. I definitely agree with you. We have a lot of advocates here in Kenya as well, you know, who are doing some incredible things. And when you talk about, you know, how we need to educate people about periods and, you know, making it normal or normalizing talk of periods. So we have S, who's a friend, a very close friend of mine, who's called, um, she's S and she runs the Yellow End of Flower page. She's written books about endometriosis where she's gone to the cyclic definitions and the cyclic seasons of periods. You know, autumn, winter, summer, spring seasons in periods. You have, you know, what color represents what. And, you know, she hosts also, she hosts programs. She teaches programs to not only just girls, but boys too. So her program for the girls is called Faraha and her program for the boys is called Keto. And this is empowering boys, girls, mothers, fathers with the tools required to deal with any menstrual challenges that are about to come or even just the whole menstrual cycle in general, you know, and empowering these tools on them and educating them on them is literally like, it's a complete game changer because, you know, you're omitting bullying and bullying is a huge factor. You know, you're omitting body shaming. You're teaching them so much at such an early age that you're actually preparing them for what they're going to be and what the progress that they're going to make in their next years to come. You know, she's doing some incredible work. We have another lady called Doris Marini who runs the Endo Sisters East Africa Foundation. 
which again, I mean, you know, she's she's just launched her book a few months ago. She's uh, trying to get menstrual health and endometriosis and all the illnesses that menstrual health comes with into the curriculum. So when you're taught that in schools, then you're already empowered. You have no choice but to be empowered. So we do have, in terms of advocacy, there's a lot going on. We have, I I did speak to certain, you know, these doctors, the handful of doctors that I was talking about who are running the initiative. And I was like, over here, you need to start being transparent with your work. If you're not transparent with your work, nobody's going to believe you as an excision specialist. Because it's not just about having a title. It's about backing that title with the work that you prove and show so that more and more people can generate that trust factor in you. It fills me with so much hope to hear about different campaigns, different advocacy, and different forms of advocacy, support groups, books, menstrual education and curriculum in schools. I think, luckily with the internet, I think, and social media, there's so much more awareness than there was 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. Um, when people like you and I began our journeys and it just, it does really fill me with hope. It makes me really happy when I hear people sharing their stories because our stories and our advocacy reach people. Even if it only reaches one person, if we can plant the seed of your symptoms are not normal and seek a doctor or give them awareness that there is a gold standard of care and that can give them a little bit of hope or help them find validation and understanding and support within their family as their family begins to understand what menstruation is and what painful periods truly mean, um, as opposed to what they thought they meant, then that's so beautiful and that's so necessary. And I really think that change within within endometriosis is going to come at a grassroots level. We do see more doctors having interest in endometriosis, learning about excision, but you know we are 200 million people around the world and we're sharing our stories and we're bringing forth the change that we wish that we had and we're so powerful you know so thank you so much arty for coming on the show today thank you for talking about your experience thank you for the advocacy work that you've been doing with your podcast with the east african endometriosis conference you're involved in so many different initiatives and you're involved in making a change, especially in your local region. And that is so beautiful. I just really applaud your efforts with that. Thank you so much, Amy. That's very humbling. And as we said, you know what? We try and change the narrative for the next generation. An educated patient is an empowered patient. And I just feel, you know, that this journey of us and the reason why we advocate you and I and all the other advocates passionately advocate about this is because we've been through hell and back in our journey it's been bloody gray you know all throughout and trying to find the light in the darkness trying to find the courage to do what we do and just trying to make the change that we wish we had as you said is you know is purpose and the reason why I come to purpose is because my journey has always been about turning pain into power into purpose. And my purpose for this particular journey of endometriosis is advocacy. You know, and through advocacy, we try and change it for the next generation. 